This is the Saturday morning meditation meetup. Um, we're here to debug your meditation. Um, any, uh, I'm not here to like give you a teaching on meditation or something like that. We just talk about your meditation. If you if stuff is happening in your meditation, you don't know quite what to do, or you just want to talk about it, um, that's what we're here for. So um, let's see. Uh, the meditation meetup. Oh, it's not being. Oh, it is being recorded. I'm just not the. Uh, oh, here we are, playing host. Um, sorry, a little bit of uh, background administrator there. Um, so, uh, if you have, if you want to talk about something, I see that Christian has already uh, raised his hand. Uh, but uh, that's the way to do it. If you click on the Manage Participants button, uh, you should see somewhere in there a, a way to raise your hand. I'm the host, so I can't actually see it. Um, but anyway, uh, since Christian has a question, oh, uh, as I was saying, I, I'm recording this. If you want to ask a question, you don't want the, the question or the answer to be recorded, please just let me know and I'll stop the recording. So that said, uh, Christian, why don't you go ahead? Oh, by the way, I'm eating breakfast, so I'm going to mute while I'm eating breakfast. I apologize. Okay. Uh, hello, can you hear me? Um, so during my meditation, um, I kind of have these vibrations. It's uh, all over the whole body. It's not very, like, not overwhelming, but they are there. So I guess this is whole body breathing in, in stage six. Or is, or the vibrations are a phenomenon, right? Okay. They're not. Uh, they're not the practice. Okay, so I should. I, I can also uh, kind of see the relationship between those vibrations and the breath. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm wondering if in stage seven, if I'm supposed to go back to the nose or if I can, if I can continue this whole body breathing. Wow. I'm kind of the wrong person to ask that question, unfortunately. Um, and I don't know, maybe Schultz might have a theory about that. Um, Schultz, sorry. Like, uh, so, so just to, to quickly talk about that, I mean, in stage seven, uh, ah, Schultz, Joel, sorry, go ahead. Do you have a theory? Uh, sorry, he was asking about something in stage seven. I think I kind of miss. I didn't hear the whole question, but I, yeah. So he's getting like the 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 feeling of the breath and the subtle feeling of the breath in the body, sort of as a tingle or a vibration. And he's just wondering whether he should continue doing that in stage seven or drop it and go back to the breath. I actually don't have no experience with stage seven, but my understanding is that uh, in stage seven you should be focused on exclusive attention at the nose. Okay. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. I mean, I, I, that, that sounds right to me too. I, I, I apologize for not giving you an, an authoritative answer, but, um, I don't want to, I don't want to mislead. Um, my practice is, is, um, in a slightly different place than that. So I can't actually speak authoritatively about exactly what you should do in stage seven. Um, so, uh, but yeah, I, the other thing I would say is, is experiment, right? So you're, you're trying to get, the results of stage seven. And um, if you find yourself not having exclusive attention when you put bring your attention to the nose, um, then uh, going back to whole body breathing is probably a good idea. Um, and you shouldn't feel like you, you're failing or something if you're doing whole body breathing, but you also shouldn't feel like, there's a tendency to like do the thing that is most attractive in practice and feel like, ooh, this, this is a great practice because I'm like having great feelings or something like that. But um, 
until you get to the point where you're past stage stage seven and into stage eight, um, it's that can be a little bit of a of a danger um, because there are lots of things happening in practice that are really satisfying. Um, like, I mean, stable subtle dullness is an example of this, right? Stable subtle dullness is actually very pleasant. It feels very good. It feels very energetic, but you don't want to stay there. And it's yet, it is a good result. Like it's not bad that if, if you land in stable subtle dullness. So it's the same thing. Be experimental, like see what happens when you do whole body breathing, see what happens when you do, um, uh, exclusive attention on the breath of the nose and just like evaluate like what's going on. Um, some people say stage seven is pretty boring. So, you know, if you're getting bored and that's why you're trying to go back to the body with the breath, well, that's, you know, it might be interesting to explore why you're getting bored, right? Like what's happening? Like really like pick apart, like boredom. What is that? Um, so some that's, does that help at all or am I totally off track? Yeah. Um, so phenomenologically, how uh, would I also have to uh, experience that tingling also in the nose then? Or is this something which is not supposed to happen? Uh, what's, whatever is happening is what's supposed to happen, right? Like whatever is happening is what's happening. Um, so it's likely when you're in stage seven that you'll experience a lot of tingling in various parts of your body, including the nose. It is not, for example, necessary that the tingling go away in the rest of your body. It's fine if the tingling is still there. In fact, it's likely that it will be. But um, having your attention on the nose is the practice. And the point of doing that is not that like the nose is some great important object or the stability of attention on the nose is like this vastly important insight or something like that. It's just a practice. It's like when you're skiing and you know, you, you're, you're trying to point your, your skis down the hill and turn. Um, the point of skiing isn't really that you're turning your skis, but you still have to turn your skis. So it's like that with the nose, right? You're just, you're, you're putting your attention on the nose and you're trying to stabilize your attention on the nose and then see what happens. Mm -hmm. um, so and in stage seven, you know, you, sh you should experience a lot of phenomena, right? That's, that's sort of expected in stage seven. Um, you may experience access concentration. You may experience the ability to enter into jhana. Um, if you don't experience the ability to enter into like pleasure jhanas, but you do experience the ability to enter into whole body jhana, it might be worth playing with that and seeing if more whole body jhana gets you to the point where you then are able to enter pleasure jhanas. Um, yeah. Okay, yeah, that, that sounds good. Can I ask one more yeah, question? Right. Um, so these subtle distractions, how do they feel like phenomenologically? Are they this kind of subtle pulling you away from the breath? Is, is that it? Uh, well, if it's a subtle distraction, it's, it's not, it's sort of like it pulls you away from the breath and then, and then let's go. So there are different kinds yeah. of subtle distractions. There are subtle distractions that are about, um, uh, sorry, there are subtle distractions that are about, uh, something that wants to be a gross distraction, but isn't succeeding. And so that'll just be something that's kind of going in the background. Um, and then there are subtle distractions that are more just like momentary, like something's happening in awareness that it, it briefly comes into attention and then drops away again, because you don't need to focus attention on it, like a sound, right? You don't need to be thinking about the sound after the sound is over, but it does interrupt your attention. 
And so um, when you're in stage six, uh, you should be able to notice the feeling of um, a subtle distraction pulling you out of, pulling you away from the breath as almost like, you know, raindrops on a windshield or something like that. Like it's just like, yeah. and, and it's, so it hits and then it's gone. You know, a very brief, like little pulse of, of attention being pulled away. Um, and uh, then figuring out whether your attention has actually been captured or not can, well, first of all, it can become a distraction, right? Um, but, uh, you know, the, the, the whole point of breathing with the body is basically to get to the point where there's so much consuming your attention that you're not noticing the raindrops anymore, right? So I don't know if that helps you to kind of navigate what the phenomenology should be, but that's, you kind of, this, it's difficult to really explain this and there isn't a should, right? It's like, you have to, you have to figure out what it feels like to you. There isn't a vocabulary that I can use that's going to explain to you clearly what it feels like because it's very subjective. So you kind of have to navigate. And also like the reason why you have stages, why we have this, the, the, the 10 stages is because um, typically you can, uh, you can notice what results you're getting. And you can use that to figure out whether you're actually getting what you need in the stage. So rather than trying to figure out, is this really a subtle distraction or is this just something happening in awareness? See what's happening. Like what, what's, what's the rest of your meditation like? And then, you know, like, do you have access concentration? Can you enter jhana? Do you feel like you're experiencing stage seven purification? All of these things are indications of what stage you're in. And, um, you know, so like with, with, um, with really subtle distractions that are happening in stage six, basically, if you're noticing subtle distractions happening in stage six, while you're doing breathing with the body, see if you can crank up the, 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 the resolution on breathing with the body until you don't see them anymore. Okay. Thanks. That was very helpful. Yeah. Sure. Michael. Hey, um, hey, let's see a couple weeks ago. I talked about it. <clears throat> Still have issues getting up from sits um, early and I, everybody, there was like seven people who, who had, had advice. And I think the week following that, it got a bit better. I was able to do my full hour most of the time. Um, this past, then the week after, it's kind of, depending on the day, <laughs> can go either way. Um, one thing I noticed was when I did, I usually try to do an hour sit. And when I tried to do a 34-minute sit, uh, I noticed I was having so much resistance that uh, it literally felt way more, way longer than an hour. <laughs> I was actually starting to get dull. So I started doing some walking meditation um, and I'm like, wow, there's no way it hasn't been 34 minutes yet. This is the longest 34 minutes of my life. And I went and checked and it wasn't even, you know, two minutes until the bell was going off. So I think after I did that and then the, the day after I did a one hour sit where I didn't get up and it felt subjectively a lot quicker so i realized that it's really not really the time so much as my resistance to the time or my my perception of of, of what's going on um so it's still like some days i still kind of 
get up early, um, but it's been a little bit better than, than that week, um, couple weeks when I came and asked the question. Um, so just an update on that. And the other thing is I um, signed up for a, for a Gwenka retreat um, in a couple months. And I just wanted to check with you because I know they say not to do any other type of um, any practice, any other method than what they do. And I'd like to give them a fair shot because they say you, have, you should give it a fair shot just doing how they say it. And I know it's Vipassana based, but uh, I want to make sure that um, I'm not breaking my brain or anything like that <laughs> uh, based on the stage I'm in. If I, if I follow their exact methodology or, or what your thoughts would be on that and anybody who's, who has a little information on, on doing this type of retreat. There's, basically they do body, they start out doing Anapanasati, but you know, for the first two, two or three days, but then you do body scanning the whole time. And uh, I found it, uh, you know, very helpful. And I didn't feel any, like I was going to be excommunicated from the uh, Chuladasa group for, uh, for doing that. But uh, yeah, it was very helpful. Uh, I, you know, when I did it, I tried to, you know, follow their practice as, uh, you know, while I was there with them. Good, we, good experience. We did have a council meeting where we considered chucking Steve out, but we decided not to. Well, so, it sounds like it goes in the reverse direction there because if you are telling yeah. them you're doing, a di you're doing something different or you want to keep yeah. doing it a different way, then you, they will chuck you out. Yeah, Andrea actually got kicked out of a Go Anchor retreat once. Mind police there are pretty uh, intense. But yeah. Well, they don't... I didn't feel any negative. Uh, I think they mean like if you're doing a, a bird uh, things like, you know, you're doing a yoga, you know, uh, asana in the middle of the, the uh, relaxation room or, you know, you're, you're doing some other form of uh, external forms of uh, prayer or worship or practice. They would frown on that, but what you do in your own room and what you do in your own mind, they don't really try to invade those areas. The actual policy is that you're supposed to do the actual practice and nothing else, like even in the privacy of your own room. So, um, but that said, I mean, it's, it's totally compatible with, with the mind illuminated practice. And I think switching it up is always a good thing anyway. So there's, there's really no downside to just doing what they say for whatever, if it's 10 days, it's 10 days, great. Just do what they say for 10 days and see what happens and see what you learn about your, your TMI practice because you will learn things about your TMI practice. Um, and um, I did wanna say about what you were saying earlier, um, when you notice that your meditation seems to be taking a really long time versus when you notice that it's going very quickly, that's actually an indication of more, more or less subtle dullness. So if you if the meditation if a 34 minute meditation feels like it's taking forever that's actually a good result that that means that you're that you're less dull like you said you were dealing with dullness during that 34 minute meditation and I'm a little puzzled by that because if it felt like it was taking forever that's a sign that you're that you're engaged that you're actually getting a lot of moments of of, of uh, a lot of a lot of uh, perceiving mind moments. Um, and when you sit for an hour and you find that you're not getting, that it doesn't feel like it took very long, that's an indication that uh, you're not getting a lot of perceiving mind moments. So, so these are things to think about when you're, when, you're, when you're checking that out. Part of the reason that that meditation felt like, it, like you needed to get up may have been that you just had a lot more mental energy. And so whatever 
distractions were coming up had a lot more power. Um, another thing that I would say about that is that you said that you got up in the middle of the meditation and changed it to a walking meditation. This is not something I would recommend. Um, what I would recommend is if you decide you're going to sit for 34 minutes, stick it out and sit for the 34 minutes. On the other hand, if you're having like this experience where 34 minutes is a really long time, you may want to switch down to like 20 minutes or 25 minutes and see if you could just get to the end of the 25 minutes and really experience that struggle. Like really like feel what that's like, um, get a sense of like how the struggle is happening, what sorts of feelings are giving rise to the desire to hop up off the cushion. Um, it's like this is a rich opportunity for you to to learn something about what's going on in your mind. Um, I mean, honestly, it sounds like you're going through a purification, right? So, um, so this is a great time to to like really like stick to the practice, like sit down for the amount of time that you've decided to sit down. Make sure that it's an amount of time that you really can sit down. Like, don't set yourself an impossible goal because then you'll wind up experiencing what you probably experienced in that one hour sit, which is that your, your, whatever part of you was struggling just kind of gave up. Right. And, and that's what you, what you want is not for it to give up, but for it to actually like say it's peace, like, like say whatever it is that it needs to say, which may happen in the deep mind, not in the conscious mind, but, but whatever you want it to, you want it to actually feel heard. And, um, so just completely ignoring it really isn't the right approach, but also just doing what it's pushing you to do isn't the right approach either. You need to take a middle path. Um, but, um, let me um, expand a minute on the mm -hmm. don't don't get up. Are you saying don't, uh, in my situation, I should not uh, do a, a walking meditation antidote if I proceed down the, the yeah. illness path or just well, in general, you shouldn't? you don't recommend so yeah I'm, I'm a little on the fence about that so so generally speaking the the, the instruction with um with dullness is not that you get up and do a walking meditation but rather that you just stand up and meditate silently in the same doing the same practice and the reason you do that is because the fact that you're standing up means that if you have a zen lurch you're actually going to fall over and you know it and that tends to keep you a little bit less dull um, so it's not really, you're not, you shouldn't be switching to, a, to a, a formal walking meditation practice when that happens. You should just stand up and, and keep doing what you were doing. Um, so that's one thing. But, but the, the fact that you were feeling like it was taking forever really suggests to me that there is something going on that, you're, that, you're, that needs to be investigated more. Because if, it's, if it feels like a 34-minute meditation is longer than an hour meditation, that is a classic symptom of a lot of met mental energy and agitation. And, and these are neither good nor bad, but it's, it's a little weird that you felt like that was dullness and it might be worth exploring like what's happening with that dullness. Like if it really is dullness, how's that happening that you're feeling at the same time that it's taking forever and yet you're dull. Um, and probably what's happening is that there's some part of you that's trying to shut things down. Like this isn't regular, normal dullness. This is like there's a purification happening and the part of you that's experiencing the purification is trying to close everything down. And so if you can, um, when that dullness is happening, instead of treating it as ordinary dullness, see if you can find where the dullness, where that motivation to shut down is coming from, find the energy of that motivation, then you may be able to, uh, to let that part of you be heard. Um, and, and, 
you know, release some of whatever energy it is that's, that's pushing it. Like, like, you know, it's some piece of conditioning that wants something or wants to not something and you have to give it a, give it the floor and let it kind of expose itself to the greater mind. Yeah. I think, I think you're onto something a little bit. Cause I, when I think about it, if I have a, a strong dullness that comes and, uh, uh, and then I kind of wake up to it after that, I, to the point where it's uh, I'm doing I'm sinking right I'm going back into the dullness, I get pretty discouraged. Like, well, this meditation is not going well, and it's over now. So that kind of the energy comes back in that sense. It's like, okay, well, I got to get up. No, I don't, I'm not going to get up. Well, I can just get up, and then then the energy is is then it can go very quickly from the I'm dull, I'm doing standing meditation. I'm still dull, then I'll do walking, and then and then I can switch over to uh a lot of energy to resistance to leave so yeah that, that could be something worth, worth looking into cool thank you michael can i ask you a question sure uh for me strong dullness feels like i'm falling asleep is that your experience um yes in a, in a general sense i would say what happens with me is um I'm getting better at noticing this early, but it, it can quickly go into a uh, like hypnagogic mm -hmm. thoughts and stuff like almost like a REM sleep symbolic yeah. dreaming like that can happen very, very quickly. I can say, oh, I think I might be getting dull. And then the next second is just some weird things going on in my, in my head. And that's how I know that I've, I've really quickly entered dullness. That sounds like my experience, too. Thanks. Yeah, see if you can notice a feeling of disengaging around that, like a feeling of turning away. So, Scott, you had a question? Yeah, hey, I just wanted to chime in. Um, so, uh, Michael, uh, a couple things about the Goenka retreat. Um, First of all, don't tell them if you dis if you do decide to do something different, just don't tell them. <laughs> all right. They won't know if you don't tell them. I didn't, but um, there were people that did and they get notes in their file and then they get, you know, if you get so many notes, then you get banned or something like that. So um, anyway, also only three hours strictly is strictly required each day. A lot of it's optional. So you get to choose like how much time you rest and how much time you actually sit. Um, you could actually sit for like 11 hours a day or something like that if you want, but um, you only have to sit for like three hours. So, I mean, if you, sometimes I did something slightly different in the, um, in the morning session for like the first two hours. Cause I was like completely exhausted. I couldn't do like the body scanning. I was just way too tired. So I just did like following just like, you know, just in out and that's like all I could do. And I found that really helpful you know, even though they, they're, he's really strict about like, you know, don't do following, just, 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 just only sensations and, you know, and stuff like that. But it's too, it's too hard sometimes. Um, another thing is, uh, well, now you have uh, more motivation to sit for the full hour if you're going to do a going retreat because the sits are one hour minimum. So they're one to two hours. So you can definitely do it. Um, now, like afterwards, after the minute, after the retreat, um, I don't know how you feel, but I felt like really exhausted. So for the first few days, there was like a recovery period where I like I had trouble, you know, like sitting my normal time period because I just 
So make sure you get all the sleep that you that you need, and make sure you get all the sleep that you that you need during the retreat as well, because you don't want to be like completely exhausted by like day seven and eight and like not have any energy left. Um, and I totally agree with like Ted when he was saying like uh, you know, just like try to set a pattern for sitting for the whole time, even if that means like sitting for less time, just like drop that habit of getting up early, even if that means sitting less, just, just establish that like positive feedback loop. Right. And then once you're in that positive feedback loop, you're practicing enough. So you're going to be able to practice more since you've been practicing consistently and you just, you just, that thought pattern is just, you know, temporarily gone and, or whatever. Um, and like, but sometimes if you're too tired to sit and you know that you're not going to be able, you know, it's going to be like a real struggle and it's not that you don't want to sit, but it's that you're just like really exhausted. Then walking my meditation might be good, but you can just plan to do it from the outset. Just like, okay, I'm just going to do walking meditation and it's actually a lot easier to make it for the full time. Um, and then, and then you're not breaking any rules. You're not breaking your own, you know, what, what, what you intended to do it it was what you intended to do so anyway that's that's just what i wanted to say good luck on your retreat thank you thank you well i'll be here for a little while it's a couple months away so Uh i'll I'll probably be mentioning it a few times because it's gonna be big on my mind it's my first ever retreat oh yeah thanks for that clarification by the way scott that was a really good point that i that that you know you, you you definitely if you want to do walking meditation, that's great. Do walking meditation. I'm not saying don't do that. Just don't switch to it. Um, Tom, did you have another uh, thing you want? Yes. I wanted to generalize for some, from something you said to Michael. Um, you were talking about how, well, in his case, it was an easy sit that seems to go fast, may indicate, more dullness and a struggle, a sit that feels long and involves struggle may actually produce more growth. Um, So what I get from that is easy practices that make me feel good are easy and feel good, but they may not make me grow. More difficult practices may not feel as good, but may be important for growth. Is there a way to know which difficult practices I should focus on. And I think it would be good maybe to intersperse easy practice now and then to keep morale up. Um, Could you talk about that, Tom? Yeah, thanks, Tom. That's a really good question, a really important question, because that's definitely not what I was trying to get across. (laughs) Um, What I'm saying is if what's coming up in meditation is a struggle, then that's great. That's a great opportunity. And you should like, basically whatever is happening in meditation, uh, the right way to look at it is yay. Right. Cause like, you know, there's never any point in being like, Oh man, my meditation is sucking today. Right. That, that's, that, that's just never a useful thing to say. Right. Yeah. But if it's constantly difficult, you know, mm-hmm. that's going to destroy my morale. Right. Well, so, so, the point is not to try to have difficult meditations. It's to try to accept whatever happens in meditation and take advantage of it. So um, if all of your meditations are difficult, that's probably an indication that you're doing something wrong, right? And so like when you 
when you're engaging in your meditation, one of the questions you should be asking is, is there something that I'm doing that's not really effective right now? And is that why my meditation is so rocky? And then if you find that thing, whatever it is, then you, and you drop it and your meditation gets less rocky, then that's the, that's the whole point of what I was just saying is like, that's what you're looking for. You're trying to figure out why the meditation is rocky. It's not that having rocky meditations is good. It's not like you, you want to get to the point where you have like this perfect quietude that's, that's, that's energetic and clear, but, um, but not rocky, but, uh, if there's some, if there are some rocks on the river bottom, it's not a bad thing when they come up, right? Like, like you, you want to deal with them when, when you, when they come up, you want to deal with them. And so, so the, the process is really all about that. It's all about like, um, it's all about having the, um, you know, having whatever comes up in the meditation be a useful thing to work with and working with it. And, and yeah, by all means, like, you know, if you have meditations, but so, so you don't want to like have a meditation that's really easy because you weren't trying like, or trying isn't the right word, but because you were not being diligent and engaged, unengaged, disengaged. Yeah, exactly. So like, um, you know, say you're practicing at stage four. Well, if you don't notice that you're being disengaged and try to counter that, then you're never going to get out of stage four because you're going to always have dullness. You're, all, you're going to always be struggling with dullness. You've got to learn to notice when you're disengaging and not disengage. Um, at the same time, there are lots of different ways that you can get rid of dullness, and many of them are by creating stress, right? And you don't want to create stress. That's not the point. The point is not to disengage in a way to create or to re-engage in a way to create stress. If you notice that you're disengaging, all you want to do is just re-engage and then see what happens. You don't want to be like, oh God, I've got to stay engaged. You know, like you don't want to do that thing where you're like struggling to force the meditation to do something. But you also don't want to not notice that you're disengaged and do something about it. So... I was doing stage five practices for a while mm -hmm. and not, not experiencing a subtle flow that I thought I was supposed to be looking for. Mm -hmm. So more recently, uh, I really like breath counting. So I've just been breath counting for the last couple of weeks and that's easy and it feels good and I stay engaged and uh, I feel like I get something out of it, but I don't want to abandon TMI, you know, so I'm, I'm feeling a little uncertain about how to move forward. So stage five practice in particular um, can be really obstacular. Obstacular? Um, What's that word? mean? This is a word that Andrew and I use. It can be a big obstacle. Um, oh, okay. yeah, because there's a tendency to um, to not want to um, uh, do the the body scan because the body scan is hard, right? Body scan is not an easy practice, and so it requires a lot of work. It's not as I mean, it can be incredibly pleasant, but it, generally speaking, is not incredibly pleasant particularly when you're starting. Uh, it gets more pleasant over time. And so part of the process of diligence is recognizing that resistance and working with it. 
And it doesn't mean that you have to force yourself to be doing the body scan for the entire sit. But what you do want to do is try to make sure that you do the body scan during your sit and that you give it enough diligence that you're, that you're making progress in getting better at the body scan and not just getting discouraged. What you don't want to do is try to, okay, I'm in stage five. I'm going to sit down and I'm going to do body scan for this whole hour. Don't do that, right? Because you can't. What's going to wind up happening is you're going to land in dullness. You might sort of think that you're doing the body scan, but you're not really doing it very well because you're so dull. And then you're really in stage four, even though you're pretending to be in stage five, and that's no good, right? So, so what you want to do is, is be in stage four, get to the point where you're so energized that you can start to do the body scan practice. Do the body scan practice. Notice when your energy level is no longer good enough to do the body scan practice and go back to doing stage four. But don't not do the body scan practice at all. I say this as somebody who really likes to avoid doing the body scan practice. And so, um, you know, one of the things that really helped me was, was back in the finder's course days, uh, there, we went through all of the Goenka phases, right? And one of the Goenka phases is like doing a body scan. It's not the same body scan that we do in TMI, but it is a body scan. And that was just our practice. And so, and, and, you know, Jeffrey was just like, just do it, just do it. And, and so I kind of got over the, the body scan, uh, aversion for a while there. Um, but yeah, it, it, it's, it's not the funnest practice in the world until, until it starts producing PT, like massive amounts of PT, in which case it can be fun. But, um, yeah. Yeah, I get waves here and there, but they don't last very long. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, one of the things about waves of PT is that when waves of PT come, uh, there's a tendency to like go like, ooh, <laughs> and then <laughs> that's a distraction, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, so, so when the waves of PT come, uh, it's just like the raindrops, right? It's like your, your goal is not to like start, you know, I mean, it can be nice to go out and stand in the rain, especially if you live in Arizona, but, um, but uh, that's not the goal of the practice, right? So, so when, when the PT comes, uh, just treat it like any other distraction. It's not something you want to go away, right? Like any other distraction, you just allow it, right? Let it come, let it be, let it go. Um, it tends to make me tense up, and I don't think I want mm -hmm. that. Well, so when it makes you tense up, um, why is that? That's a thing to, to explore. I wouldn't suggest that you do that every practice, because then that will become a distraction. But it's, it is worth investigating at some point. Why is PT making me tense up? See if you can notice why. Good. Thank you. Um, the uh, the PD things also make me tense up. What I used to, it took me a long time to. Uh, I started out to systematically train myself to just let them be there. Uh, when they first started happening, they, they captured my attention. I was like really interested in them, kind of natural. Like I just naturally wanted to see what they were about because they were really intense and they felt kind of good and like the first intense sensation that came purely from my meditation. Um, so I had to like outgrow that interest just sort of be very neutral, uh, ambivalent to their being there. Um, but I still tensed up for a while. Like there was still a phase of when the PT came, I would sort of tense muscles kind of everywhere in my body just a little bit. Uh, like 
a good reason I found to not do this or to like actively try to avoid this is that it would eventually like, or it would occasionally tense up postural muscles in a way that messed up my posture. Like it would just put me off my like seat just a little bit. Like I would sit just a little wrong and it would start to cause problems with my posture for the rest of the sit. And I guess at that point I realized like, okay, there's a practical reason I should not be tensing muscles at all. Uh, and I, the way I changed it was as soon as one of these PT waves started, I would intentionally relax all my muscles like as much as I could. So I would put attention on actually relaxing muscles for a moment. And I guess that became automatic after a while because it doesn't really tense muscles the same way anymore. Maybe that's a like concrete technique you could use. Thank you, John. Could you just describe what a, you said PT wave. Could you just briefly describe what, what that uh, is, feels like to you? The best description I've seen that corresponds with my experience is uh, it's like a non-sexual orgasm. And when Joel was talking about the PT wave, he mentioned that also. Is that, uh, do you have a similar uh, feeling? Uh, I'm not sure. I wouldn't really compare it to anything except, um, you know, when you're listening to music, sometimes you get this feeling of like goosebumps running down this, your spine really quickly. Uh, sometimes it spreads a little further down your body. It's, it's almost like a chill or like your hair standing on end. And it feels a little bit like electricity on the surface of your skin. Uh, it's exactly that feeling. Whatever that is, it's exactly that 100%. Except it's I get it from music too. Yeah. It typically uh, it's like that faster. AMSR, uh, I think it's related ASMR. to that. Yeah. ASMR, thank you. Uh -huh. Yeah, just from um, coming from the uh, energy work, I always, uh, you know, my, my correlation is to chi, so I, but that's, you know, developing a relationship with chi, so that's, I mean, and it's all similar feelings, but thank you very much, that, that, that helps clarify. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of ways that PT can, can manifest. That's just um, one of the more subtle and pleasant ways. Uh. So, um, as I understand it, like stage five, the point is basically to like recruit like more conscious power, right? Like by doing the body scan. So like the minimum isn't to like be able to sense the, the breath sensations, right? You just basically try. And I just wonder like, Tom, like, do you find like, do you come back to the nose and do you, do you feel like it's, it's, it's better or it's less like you have more awareness or something at the nose? Afterwards. Early on, when I was uh, on the cusp between four and five, just beginning to work with the stage five practice, yeah, I had that experience of I'd be, in, be doing the stage four practice and have a certain level of clarity and then body scan for a while. And when I came back to the nose, it felt more acute. Uh, now, I can't discern a difference between the clarity before the body scan and after. Well, I haven't done the body scan in a couple of weeks. So um, the last time I was doing it, I wasn't discerning a difference in clarity between before and after. So is that because it's not very clear or because it's very clear? It, my, my sense was because I had achieved the level of clarity that I can at my current energy level. And maybe if I can find a way to develop more energy, it would become mm -hmm. clearer. But All right. So... Didn't that. Yeah, so um, 
what you just described is the is the criterion for being done with stage five. Maybe not forever, but it's the, oh. it's at that point that you should start doing stage stage six practice. So oh. perhaps that's what you should be doing. Okay, I've I've fiddled with stage six just a little bit. Maybe I should get more serious about that. Yeah, yeah, give it a try. I mean, one of the great things about any moving up from one stage to another is that it will very quickly reveal whether you're ready to practice the next stage. And by the way, if you're not, it will show you what you need to do in the previous stage. Cool. Thank you. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, Sam definitely sounds like stage six. All right. Uh, so does anybody else have any questions they'd like to bring up? Briefly talk about um, illness. I've been um, pretty, pretty, not severely ill, but pretty uh, ill, <laughs> very ill over the last seven to 10 days. Ill, nothing, you know, life-threatening type ill, but enough so that, you know, throws you for a loop and doesn't really give you many options for meditation, Matt. So, you know, you go, you get to a point where you think, all right, this is all right now, I'm I'm, I'm ready to challenge this mountain and you know here I've been you know look at the view here I've been able to get this far and then whack. <laughs> you're like all right here I am Sisyphus looking back up the mountain so it's just uh, yeah, I guess it's a little bit of that investing in loss and and uh, you know trying to you know start fresh again so that's that's where I'm, I'm feeling right now so is this a recurring theme for you Steve does this happen to you a lot mean getting sick yeah well getting sick when your meditation is going well oh no there's i i've never had a correlation okay all right just checking sometimes sometimes um purifications can manifest that way no these are you know no these are you know relating to you know, health issues that are you know i've dealt with throughout my life and that, so. okay no it's uh yeah i i have sabotaged myself from doing well many times in the past, so you know what, uh, what that sort of means. So that, that's happened frequently, but I don't, uh, I don't see any uh, correlation. All right. Yeah, so I mean, you know, when that happens, I mean, I remember once during the finders course I got, this was actually fairly brief, but it was quite intense. I had a, a really intense, um, uh, I, I got some kind of uh, flu-like thing, um, and uh, I wound up, I took some, some um, whatever that uh, uh, antiviral is, um, and I wound up having like massive migraines. I think I was allergic to the antiviral. And, uh, and so there I was, I'm in the middle of the finder's course, it's essentially this intensive practice thing. We're supposed to be practicing a couple hours a day typically. And, um, and here I am like sitting in my, in my, easy chair like sort of just going uh. um but i was really determined like at that point i really wanted to 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 uh suck the juice out of the finders course and i really wanted to do the practice every day even if it was hard and so what i wound up doing is just like sitting there in my easy chair kind of curled up around the pain and just like exploring what was going on and that actually turned out to be really fruitful i learned um uh, that a lot of the pain that I was experiencing was actually not real physical pain, but uh, my resistance to what was going on. 
coming up as pain. And, uh, and so when I would go and investigate the, the resistance, I would suddenly stop feeling the pain. It was really interesting. So uh, not that you're going to have this experience every time you get sick, but, but it's one of the things you can do when you get sick is just like explore your body's relationship to whatever's or your mind's relationship to whatever is going on. Like, am I resisting what's going on? Am I feeling pain because it's painful or am I feeling pain because I'm pushing something away? Um, so, you know, just a suggestion. I um, had um, similar feelings to that, um, and it's a lot more uh, mental-wise, uh, mental health-wise. Uh, you know, I was actually thinking a lot about dark nights, and I, I sort of was coming to a, a conclusion that there's two types of dark nights. Uh, I think of the, I was thinking of the one as being a sort of uh, the the classical depression or or anxiety or the angst that one goes through uh, that could be uh, correlated in the regular mental states. But then I'm also thinking about in a very deep jhanas and when, um, you know, you're leaving a lot of the, the uh, comforts of consciousness and you're perhaps interacting more with your unconscious that reminded me a lot more of like, uh, you know, I hate to relate back to psychedelics, but it, I mean, it really did remind me of bad trips. So it's, it's a, a question of where you're, you know, I thought I was past all the dark night sort of things, but then you realize, well, wait a minute, there's your unconscious has all these things going on in there that you're not necessarily uh, accessing in your normal life. And then, when you're getting into these deep states and you're, you know, you have to, to my mind, it has to, at that point, jumping off the cliff where you have to like, let go and either fly or, or flop sort of thing. So that's, you know, again, the fear you're at. So, so I've seen it from that point of view that that relates a lot. To yeah. I mean, one of the things that can happen, I think part of, so, people can wind up in, in experiences like that at various stages in the practice. One of the nice things about being um, uh, sort of past the point where you've, where you're fundamentally, excuse me, where you're fundamentally okay, is that even when that happens, there is a certain feeling of, of, of like, you know, yeah, this really sucks. And I really don't feel okay right now, but um there's a certain feeling of like confidence that you can actually dive into it and, you know, like jump off the cliff and it'll be okay. Whereas um, before that, like a dark night where you have never experienced fundamental okayness, right? That's a lot different because you, you don't know that, that there's safety somewhere and you're, you're in this place where, you know, you don't know if when you jump off the cliff, things are going to be okay or, or if things are just going to get worse. And um, so, yeah. Yeah. But that can happen. I mean, you can get into like feelings that are like that anytime. Because that the way I'm hearing, uh, you know, you about the fundamental okayness as, you know, as, as, and as I understand it from the finders, it's, it seems more conscious than, you know, when, you know, where it's a little bit, you know, I, a little difference I'm saying where it's your, you know, that's something where you can say, okay, I'm okay. But, you know, if you're in your unconscious, your unconscious isn't saying, 
I'm okay or not okay. That's a conscious sort of, that's a conscious thing. So, you know what I'm saying? You can have a, a malaise that, that is there uh, in the unconscious, I think, you know, and I'm just, I'm just, you know, I'm scratching at the edges too. So, but I appreciate it. That's, uh, that really does cover my topic. Thank you. Anybody got anything else they want to talk about? James. Hello, everybody. Um, so just one interesting thing that's been happening reasonably often, and I wouldn't mind a bit of feedback on. Um, every now and then in my sits when I'm not, but I don't feel very dull, at least. Um, so I've got reasonable breath clarity. Um, I'll start having uh, some body twitches um, that might range from just just a very slight twitch to a considerable jerk. Um, and at first I was, especially with the more jerky sensations, I was, I was getting a little bit confused thinking that it was, um, you know, like a Zen lurch sort of thing. Um, and it brought up a bit of a version. Um, then after a while, I realized that, I, that there wasn't a lot of other signs of dullness around when those things were occurring. Um, and then sometimes with some of, the, some of the really major body jerks, I would get a sudden kind of burst of really strong contractions that immediately preceded it. Um, and I don't, I, don't, I don't believe anything's wrong. It just seems to be a, a curious thing that I've noticed that maybe somebody could help uh, illuminate for me. Well, uh, those strong jerks are definitely an example of PT um, for what that's worth. Um, as for, you know, if you're having a lot of distraction and suddenly you have a strong jerk, well, it could be that like the part of the, so you're part of the process uh, of, of training your mind, right? Is that you're training your mind to notice when things are off, off kilter and adjust. And so one thing that could be happening, and I'm really just speculating here, but one thing that could be happening is that, is that you're having all of these distractions and then suddenly that part of your mind wakes up and, uh, and does actually a really good job of suddenly getting you into focus and that produces that that sudden prana jolt um but that's just a theory i, I don't i don't you know I, I think you know when you notice correlations like this it the thing to do is just start exploring them like make that part of your part of your practice that, that you'll you'll explore like why is it that i seem to get you know this big clump of distractions and then a prana jerk and what happens after that like you know, do I actually wind up back on talk on topic for a while, or do I just have that that sudden readjustment followed by more distraction? So, yeah, I mean, the thing about PT is, it, it in a sense, I mean, it tells you that something interesting is going on, but it's not very specific. So, <laughs> yeah, because and and going back to what people were saying, describing some of their PT experiences. Um, you know, kind of waves of almost goosebumps when you feel like you should be cold, but you're not actually cold. And so mm -hmm. um, I experienced that at times as well. So, yeah. Okay, cool. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Someone else?
Ed, can you tell us how Andrew almost got kicked out of a Goenka retreat? <laughs> so Andrew and I um, both have practiced a Tibetan Buddhist tradition where there are um, some practices that you do every morning and every night that um, you know we, we are supposed to do every morning and every night. And um, Andrea wanted to do a, a nice retreat. And so she, and we have a Goenka Center that's very close to us here. And uh, so she set up to do a retreat at the Goenka Center. And she, when she went in, she was just going to do her morning and evening practices and not tell anybody. But what wound up happening was that as she went through the first couple of days there, it became clear to her that this was just not okay, that she was actually essentially committing a misdeed by lying about you know, what she was doing in the retreat. And she just couldn't tolerate that. And so she confessed. And about an hour later, I got a phone call from the retreat center saying, can you come pick Andrea up? <laughs> so yes, she is, she is, uh, she is one of the, uh, the posse of, of uh, meditation uh, ne'er-do-wells who have been. Uh, and she can't ever go back, right? She's on a no, she could, she, they said, they said, first of all, they said, you know, we really appreciate you being honest about that because a lot of times people aren't and, you know, you're welcome to come back anytime you want, but you have to agree to not do the thing. So. She could tell the story a lot better than I can, but she never comes to these meetups. So. Oh, well. Boring. Boring. She says. <laughs> All right. Well, I hope that everybody isn't falling asleep with boredom, but you know, if you are, at least you probably need your rest. Christian? Yeah, I've got uh, nothing at all, but a question which come, came to my mind uh, on the mindful review. Um, so there's this step where you're supposed to see how your craving depends on the illusion of a separate self. Can I even do that before I had the insight in my meditation or is that then not productive to look at that in my mindful review? So one of the things about any practice like this is that there's a tendency to feel like you should be able to get an answer. And sometimes when you ask a question, you don't get an answer. I mean, this happens all the time in purifications, right? Like you, a purification comes up, you know a purification is going on, you're really curious about whatever it was that caused this purification because it's like, you know, creating maybe some major havoc for you on the cushion, but you don't know and you never find out. You just feel one day that it subsides and it's gone and you don't really know why it happened. So um, the thing about uh, insight into self is that there are so many different ways that it can manifest that, um, you know, what you're being asked to do there is just speculate, basically. If you don't know, just speculate. Like, like is there a way that I can see that this relates to a grasping to self? And, you know, a lot of times you can see a way that it relates to grasping to self, right? Like, you know, when, you, when you're driving down the road and somebody cuts you off in traffic and you uh, feel anger about that, um, you know, it's pretty easy con to connect that to the idea that there's like this person out there that caused this thing to this person over here. And that's what's creating this, this, this mismatch that, that, that gives rise to anger, this, this feeling of like things aren't correct. And, and the feeling of things aren't correct is actually like, like weirdly a, a powerful motivation for anger, right? So, um, 
So one of the things, I mean, I'll, uh, this, this may or may not help you, but um, one of the things that I talk about a lot when I talk about no self is actually not the, the, the lack of a self here, but the lack of a self there. Um, and this can be really useful. Um, so think about like, I mean, I'm, I'm from the US, so, so I'm speaking about this in the, very much in the first person, right? We had an event that occurred in, what was it? Uh, September 11th of 2001 or something where about 3,000 people died as a result of some activity that was caused by some bad actor out there. And we went out and killed, I don't even know how many people as a result of that, right? Uh, I mean, it's not even over yet, right? Um, and so, so 3,000 people died and we went out, we killed like way, way more than 3,000 people. Um, and the reason we did that is because we knew that there was someone who was responsible and that it was necessary for us to punish them, right? There was a bad actor and we needed to do something about it. Compare this to December of 2004, when about 220,000 people died all at once on the same day in a very similar surge of sudden deaths, right? But those deaths were caused by a tsunami. There was no actor involved. There was no person, right? And because there was no person, there, was, there wasn't that same feeling, right? It was a horrible thing. I mean, it was, if, you were, if you were paying attention to the news during that period, it was heartbreaking. I mean, it's just like, I mean, I, I, you know, it's, it's, it's not even fun to think about it because it was just so horrible. But, you know, a month later, we weren't at war with anybody, right? There wasn't like some big thing happening. Why? Because there was no self there to attack. There was no person there to attack. So, so this is an example of the kinds of things that we can do as a result of grasping to self. Like, was it really the right response to go out and like, you know, drop a million bombs on Kandahar and like, you know, like start rounding people up and gunning people down in the street and whatever the hell else we did. No, I mean, you, you look back on that and it's really obvious that that was not constructive. Like if we really wanted to actually prevent a recurrence of what happened on September 11th, going out and killing more people probably wasn't the right way to do it, but that's what we did. And the reason we did it was because we were grasping to self. So we didn't do that for the Christmas tsunami. And, you know, we, instead we were like, oh, let's see if we can have better tsunami early warning systems. We didn't actually do that well at it, honestly, which is sort of depressing, but, but at least we were trying to solve the right problem, right? It's concluding a few issues though, I think, Ted. It's the same thing as if a person dies from an accident and somebody's murdered. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I don't think you're proposing that there should not be any rules or punishments for a murder. So, I mean, I, I'm just saying the conclusions you're reaching are a lot of the things that were done weren't necessarily just for that act that has a lot to do with, you know, foreign policy. And, you know, we were at war with a lot of people. Yes, we can come up with lots of stories to explain why we want to go out and kill right. a bunch of people. Right. So, but if you take it in a <laughs> Yeah, you take it in, I mean, take your story and put it down to somebody, you know, uh, falling off of a, of a cliff into an ocean dying and compared mm -hmm. to murder. So now you're, well, you're, how does that work out compared, to, you know, with the self in, in that situation? With maybe yeah, so that's right. So so what's the difference between, between somebody dying accidentally and somebody dying of murder? Well, so, so just to, to go into like a little bit of an example of that in real life, um, you know, if you're driving down the road, 
in your car and uh, somebody pulls out in a way that surprises you and there's a collision between you and that person, we have this whole system of trying to figure out whose fault it is, right? And the person whose fault it is is the one who has to pay for it. And, um, and that's actually quite expensive. And I, I, this is, this, uh, the, the problem with talking about stuff like this is it tends to get a little bit political. And so I'm not like trying to tell you that you should believe my, my, my position on what we should have done. What I'm saying is when there is an opportunity to identify a scapegoat, our behavior is different than when there is not an opportunity to identify a scapegoat. And this is a classic human cognitive bias. So when we have an accident where there's a collision between two people, there's a tendency to want to say that person caused the accident and that person didn't. And so that person has to pay. Whether that tendency is functional or not is not really examined. Like you'll notice that in some states in the US, for example, we have something called no fault insurance. And the idea with no fault insurance is just don't even get into that argument about whose fault it is. Just everybody makes sure that if you're going to be driving, that you have insurance coverage. And when something bad happens, the insurance pays for it. And, you know, if somebody did something wrong, then, then we'll deal with that entirely separately from the question of how, who pays for the damage, right? Like maybe they did something wrong. Maybe they violated a traffic law. Okay, let's give them a traffic ticket. But we don't make them pay for the accident because we're just, the, the problem of paying for the harm that was caused in the result, as a result of this system that we have for getting people transportation, right? is a separate problem from the problem of was that person actually behaving skillfully on the road? And by separating those two problems out, we substantially lower our costs. So should there doing be a lot no, less work. Uh, so should there be no laws against murder on, in using your example? Uh, did I say that? No, I mean, you're saying there should be a, you're, you use your example of no fault. The, you know, the fact that there is the trying to find a fault is that that's a problem that we could just go to no fault. So I'm trying to relate to. What yeah. So what I'm what I'm do so so it's pretty obvious to me that murder should be illegal, right? I don't think that anybody here would really debate that. So so therefore I'm trying to come up with an example where it's a little bit less obvious because I have an because, example. Yeah. Go ahead. I'd like to jump in and I can tie it back to the mindful review. So I think it's a good, so on a smaller scale, here's something to, that you can actually look for in your own life. Let's say a person on the street comes up to you and just insults you like you're ugly as hell, <laughs> something like that. Uh -huh. See what That's the right. first reaction in your mind is. Usually it's, you have to say something back to them to insult yeah. them. Yeah. Right. And that's what most people would do. They would flip them off. It, there's a, immediate uh the defense is to be an offense so you have to get even somehow the the thought is there's some kind of score that needs to be kept like i have to return the balance you were just going about your day you had no anger or anything and someone comes up and says something to you then you have to get back at them in some way if you know after the shock kind of if the shock isn't just leaving you there speechless but or even somebody in your family, if you think about that, if they say something, you have to feel like you have to get back at them uh, in some way. If they do their same thing, oh, they always are ungrateful about this and they always say that about me or something like that. And then see what your first reaction is. So that's um, a much smaller scale than version of yeah. the, if there's a murder, there needs to be a punishment, you know. You know. <laughs> 
the death penalty. Okay, well, the balance can never, I mean, the, the damage was done. The, you know, yeah. you can say, well, it makes things even, um, but that's just kind of made up, right? And then on the other hand, uh, oh, it's a deterrent, right? Punishment is a deterrent. Well, not really. I mean, our prisons are full of people. <laughs> so they all knew that they were breaking the law. Maybe they didn't think they would get caught. So I think that's that's what it comes down to. And with the mindful review, you can start to look back on your day and say, oh yeah, well, wait a minute. Well, yesterday, you know, that guy at work did this and my reaction was to try to even the odds, or, you know, even the score. Um, okay, wow, okay, let me write that down. And then you start to notice that as it's happening. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, what I wanted to say about that uh, in the case of the murderer, and I think we have the tendency to to think there's something intrinsically wrong about the person that did that, that it's, it's a bad person, and that's why he did it, yeah? yeah. But if we just happen to live uh, their lives and go through the same circumstances and conditions that they had, we would probably have done the same. So uh, if we really believe the no-self doctrine, uh, there is nothing intrinsically that had uh, that made that person act in that way, except for the life they lived up to that point. So anybody in that position would have done exactly the same. Uh -huh. But I think the, the tendency to try to find like a, a, a guilty or a bad person, like this agent of terror that produced the, the problem, that, that's why... That is that in us, like the the anger, the the need to get back uh, at the person, yep. and the need to blame and find find fault. Like, why did this happen? Yeah. And there also has to be a way blame? of, you know, you can you can uh, you know take that to the nth level, which is a, the last level you always go to is the Holocaust. So it's like you still. You know, we're saying it because we're angry or because there's Did a you lot see my blog things. post on killing Hitler, Steve? No, I didn't. You should check that out. Yeah. But, I'm, but my point is that, you know, a lot of these things are things that we've decided, rules that we need in order to, to function together as humans. So we have to, you know, we have to have a law that if you go through a red light, you get a ticket. And, you know, you give a person a ticket for going through the red light, it's not because you know, we got all these, you know, angst against the person or we're trying to do something to solve something of the self. And, you know, yeah, a person is, is born in miserable circumstances. They're obviously much more likely to have issues, but you still have to have rules in society too that are, you know, not necessarily just vengeance minded. Yeah, I mean, one of the things, so I'll, I'll, I'll point out two things and we probably, we probably shouldn't continue this too long, but, but it is an interesting topic. Um, one of the things to notice, I think probably everybody in this conversation had some kind of reaction to uh, either what I said or what Steve said or what uh, Guido said or, you know, what Michael said um, that was resistance to that. Like, that's not correct, right? That's an example of the self coming up. That's a feeling of the self coming up, right? Um, and yeah, exactly. Uh, so, so actually this kind of conversation is really useful for surfacing like 
our our feelings of, of like grasping to self because because they will surface in situations like this. Um, so that's one thing that I that I wanted to mention about it. The other thing I wanted to mention about it is that we we do tend to talk about things in terms of of, of uh, stopping people from doing bad actions, um, and there is a natural. I think this is a human cognitive bias uh, that comes from you know the way that the way that hum, humans appeared in the world and, and, and evolved that that in order for tribes to work, bad actors have to be punished somehow to stop them from acting badly. And that punishment could go as far as killing them, right? And, and you know, when you're talking about a tribe in a situation of scarcity, um, trying to survive in, in, a, in a hostile world, then the kinds of behaviors that we, that, that, that would work for that are different than the kinds of behaviors that will work in a situation where there isn't scarcity or where there doesn't need to be scarcity. So in the modern world, we live in a situation where pretty much any scarcity that you see is artificial. Like we could probably feed every single person in the world, but we don't. Um, it wouldn't be easy. It would mean that some of us would wind up eating less, but, um, but we probably could feed everyone in the world. We probably could have a world that is just. We don't. Um, and the ways in which the world isn't just really don't have a lot to do with our laws against murder, right? We have laws against murder. Um, and. Uh, you know, we have laws against a variety of things. Uh, so when we talk about um, when we talk about bad actors and stopping people from doing bad things, there are, there's typically more than one way to stop someone from doing something bad. One way, obviously, is to kill them, imprison them, do something that removes their agency so they are no longer able to act, right? That's one way to solve that problem. Another way to solve that problem is to try to figure out what is causing them to behave badly and address that. And if you look at, so, so I studied Buddhism for a long time, so I'm gonna give you a Buddhist thing here. Master Shantideva, beautiful teaching. Um, he talks about anger and the problem with anger. And he says, you know, we have a tendency when somebody gets angry to get angry back at them because they got angry at us. And so we see them as the problem, right? Um, and so if somebody gets angry at me and beats me with a stick, right? I get angry at them, right? So why didn't I get angry at the stick? Because it was the stick that hit me, it wasn't the person, right? The person didn't touch me, it was just the stick. So why am I not angry at the stick, right? The reason I'm not angry at the stick is because the stick isn't causing the problem. So take that up a level. Look at the person who's got the stick in their hand and is beating me with it. Why are they beating me? They're beating me because they're angry, right? They're beating me because they're angry at me. So if I get angry at them, what am I doing? I am giving a home to the very thing that was wielding them and causing them to beat me. If I want to get angry at something, the thing I should get angry at is anger, right? Anger is the problem. Their anger is what's causing them to pick up a stick and beat me. If I just reflect their anger back at them, all I'm doing is perpetuating the thing that caused them to beat me with the stick. If I really wanna solve this problem, I have to go deeper than that. I have to figure out how do we get people to not be angry in the first place? That's the problem, right? That is the, that is the problem that we face. If we wanna live in a just world, we have to be 
First off, we have to be proponents for justice. And justice doesn't mean hurting people. Justice doesn't mean being the agent of harm, right? Justice means figuring out how to make it so that there isn't somebody who's growing up in such crappy circumstances that they wind up growing up and murdering people. And you know, if there's somebody who actually has a problem in their mind that makes it impossible for them to behave justly, how can we put them in a situation where they can live out their life without us having to kill them, imprison them or whatever, where they also don't cause harm to others, right? How do we create that society? And I'm not saying that I know how to create that society because I don't, but isn't that a better thing to aspire to than a society where we are really good at punishing people and successfully stopping them from doing bad things after they've, after anger has wielded them, right? Like they're, they're in the, they're in the grasp of anger and, and we're just going to like, Oh, okay. That person has gone bad. Now the little light went on that said they're an angry person. And so now we're going to stop them. Like, couldn't we just figure out a way to get the light to go out again to make the anger go away? So that's my little sermon. Well, I think that, um, it's a very good point. It's hard to say no to Shanti Deva. Well, actually, I would actually. I, I was trying. My, your idea that of what justice is just that. It's your idea of what is just. So that doesn't mean make it necessarily so. Uh, yeah, that we use uh, imprisonment and punishment in the United States much to a, a large degree more than we should. But Ted, if you just look at you know. Your, a lot of your assumptions are, are based on, um, you know, a very small corner of human reality. I mean, all of uh, life regards, I mean, if you look at, you know, in the wild, if you have a lion going to, to, to kill and eat a antelope, right? Well, you know, you're going to set up a fence to stop the lion from doing that or say it's your cow, you know, whatever. It's like there's a natural uh, survival means life is suffering is you know you have to, you know you have to have some some um conflict that is what life is you are gonna we're all gonna die eventually it's is that just it yeah that's the way life is everybody dies so um that i i'm rambling but uh i take your point and i i have disagreements i'll leave it at that so um i'm not going to just hog the hog the the uh, thing here. Christian, did you want to say something? Uh, yeah, adding up to the point which you made was on, on this outside. So the next step in the mindful review then is to replace that intention with another intention. One of those intention is meta. So mm -hmm. is meta then, how does meta relate to that empty person thing? Is meta an, an and no self-practice, or how could I understand that? Metta is a no separate self-practice. Okay. Metta, so think about this. Normally, uh, we have this tendency to kind of draw a circle around ourselves, and where that circle is varies. Like, sometimes a circle, like, like you know, if, if, if I have gangrene on my foot, like, I might actually draw the circle slightly smaller than my body and chop off the foot because I don't want to die of gangrene. Right, so the circle can be smaller, it can get larger, it could, it could encompass like my wife, like Andrea might be in my circle, right? Or, you know, it could encompass my family, or it could even encompass like, you know, 
some organization that I'm a part of. And these people are all people that identify as me, right? So meta practice is about undrawing that circle, right? There is nobody who is not in my circle. There is nobody who I will not treat the same way that I treat me. If you look at, at like Christianity, they have this, this uh, uh, I think it's, I don't know if it's Christianity or Judaism where this came from. I think there might be a mitzvah about this as well, but um, love thy neighbor as thyself, right? And uh, what that means is not like, you know, that you're supposed to like be in love with your neighbor or like, you know, or some weird thing. It just means like, why would I treat that person differently than I treat this person? Right. Why is that person not worthy of my care, but this person is, it doesn't even mean like I have to like treat that person. I have to take care of that person the same way I take care of this person, because this person actually is kind of my responsibility in a way that that person isn't like, I have to feed this person. I have to wash this person. I don't have to feed that person. I don't have to wash that person, but I should care about that person just as much as I care about this person. And I should be thinking just as hard about how to make that person's life good as I am thinking about how to make this person's life good. Right. Um, it's a very, this is a very difficult thing to do. And so what meta practice does, is it just establishes like that wish, right? It's not even, I'm not even gonna like do something. I'm just gonna try to stop thinking of myself as separate from that other person. I'm gonna start thinking that I wish all of the happiness that I wish for myself on that person. And by the way, one of the things we often discover when we do meta practice is actually we don't wish a lot of happiness on this person. Actually, we're very unkind to this person. Um, and so, so it can be very helpful to, to do meta practice and, and surface that. Um. Yeah, it feels like to me that's kind of a similar result than, than this perspective of uh, not the person outside, but maybe it's from the other uh, yes. direction. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, in a, sense, in a sense, the reason why I use the, the example of the outside person and the example of the Christmas tsunami and the example of 911 is that um, these uh, are in a way easier to see. It's, it's, it's not as easy to see the self-grasping as it is to see the grasping towards separation from other, right? And, and that's, that's they're, they're opposite faces of the same thing. So, so it can be helpful to see that, but then, you know, as you noticed, when we started talking about that, we all had different reactions, right? And that's when the, this, self this this self starts to become visible is when it reacts to how we might behave towards others or how others might have behaved towards us then we can see this self and we can see the the feelings and the actions that that this grasping to self is motivating so yeah meta practice is actually a very good way to surface that just to get back to the original question that christian asked which was um, how does intellectual, if you don't have any inside experiences related to no self or what are the three characteristics, like how to, how can you try to apply that framework to, to thinking about it when you're doing something intellectual, like the mindful review? <clears throat> um, I think it's okay to kind of cultivate an intellectual understanding of the three characteristics on their own. Like it's a purely intellectual thing before you have insight. Um, I think that that's a good way to prime insight to some extent, as long as it doesn't forever stay in an intellectual thing only. Um, like the way this could work is, for example, if you, uh, a more mundane example where I notice like 
sense of self come up really acutely is just a resistance to day-to-day -day things that come up. Basically, anything that causes aversion or craving. So if I don't like something that just happened, or if I want something, uh, I can always draw that back to, like, there's, there's like a feeling of like someone is in there wanting it. Someone is in there not liking that. And this doesn't need to be big things. Like, this can be really small things. Like, I'm walking down the street, and then I go from sunlight into the shade, and the shade is a little too cool, and I feel like I just, like, there's a sense of, like, I just don't like that that happened. And there's, there's always, like, a feeling of, like, this happened to someone, um, and that's the person who doesn't like it. Like, I was, I, I was the thing in the state before that I liked, and I don't like this change. Um, like that's just an ex example of aversion, but you can kind of pick this out anytime you have a feeling that's negative or a feeling that's positive, but it's caused by like being drawn to some sense object. <clears throat> just being aware of that happening and trying to think of that in the framework of where's the self and all that. Can you pick out a feeling that is like the self feeling that's on top of the other feelings? Uh, just having that in mind and doing the mindful review from that framework can be handy. Um, and it kind of primes you to look in the right directions where insight experiences will later hopefully bear fruit. But you can do that for the other characteristics too. So. Yep. I was gonna say, what Jill said, that's exactly what I was uh, <laughs> gonna say. It's a, you're intellectually understanding the no self by doing, I'm a big proponent of the mindfulness review. I've been doing it for over a year. Um, so it's, uh, an observe observation you don't have to understand no self to do the mindfulness review and get something out of it you're observing uh what you've went through during the past day and you're picking out things that were craving either aversion or no oh, sorry desire but he has a different terminology than what i've been reading so it's a craving or aversion right so um one thing i would mention though is and i just reread that chapter um Chuladasa says that the more often that you are giving into craving, uh, the harder it will be to, to kind of re realize the no self or reach awakening. And the more often that you are not giving into craving, aversion or desire, then um, the closer you get in that direction. So doing the mindfulness review kind of is, is letting you observe and eventually change your behavior to where you're not giving into craving. And then you are kind of slowly breaking down um, the barrier to get where you're going. One thing to add to that is it's uh, the reason why I don't, uh, so I, I spent a fair amount of time, like 15 years in a tradition where we were taught that the way that you realize emptiness is by understanding it perfectly. And so you build this perfect intellectual understanding of emptiness. And when that crosses a certain threshold, suddenly you have the realization of emptiness. And I've actually never met anybody who had the real realization of emptiness that way. Um, literally not one person. Um, I've, I've, had, I've heard one person online talk about having had that experience uh, as, as, a, as he was uh, doing some kind of scientific research and he actually had an experience like that. But, but I don't think it was really from intellectual understanding of, of the doctrine of no self or even, or even, you know, so, so it's always going to have to be like experiential. Like even what Michael was talking about is experiential. He's talking about like, you're going to try to form 
uh, you're, you're going to try to avoid craving and uh, acting on craving and acting on aversion. And that's going to cause the self to, to like rear its little head. It's going to be like, hey, right? So you're actually going to have, by doing that, you're actually going to have this little experience of the self. And it's going to be experiential. It's not going to be intellectual. So, uh, and that will help to form an intellectual framework about self. That's, this is just the way our minds work, right? So, so there will be an intellectual formation, but it won't be based on, a, uh, it won't be based on some doctrine about self or no self. It'll be based on your actual experience of no self as you're doing these practices. And um, what's nice about doing this before you have insight is that then when you have insight and you notice no self in a very unmistakable way, it doesn't freak you out because you've been noticing it all along. So definitely worth doing. James? Yeah, I just wanted to add something that might be useful. Um, when I'm doing mindful review, um, I find it useful to kind of pass experience through um, kind of three questions, whether I have in my mind, I want something, or I don't want something, or I think this should be this way. Hmm. Things should be a way that it's not, some sort of acceptance of reality. I find... Um, Situations where those sorts of uh, statements come from my mind are those situations where I feel a, a greater sense of self, and then the opposite as well. So when I'm when I'm not having those sorts of thoughts, that's as close to I can feel as not having a self. It's not necessarily an insight into a no separate self, but it's less of a self feeling, if that makes sense. Yeah. Thanks. Those are great questions. One thing, so I, I it, it occurred to me during meditation this morning <laughs> that it might be worth saying something to you guys. Um, and not everybody that I want to say this to is here, but um, we live in a world where there isn't a lot of availability of um, people who can help you with your meditation practice and with your practice of being you know, a more awesome person. Um, and uh, the responses that I'm getting from, from people here tell me that, that you guys actually would probably be able to help other people to make progress in their, in their path. Um, and I'm not saying that, you know, obviously if you don't feel like doing that, you, you shouldn't feel obligated. I'm not trying to guilt trip you or anything like that, but, but I would encourage you to think about that because I've heard good advice from pretty much every face that I'm seeing here on the screen. And, um, and I think that there are people who could benefit from that advice. And, you know, when I started doing this meditation meetup like a year and a half ago, I was actually really skeptical about whether it was like going to help anybody or be worthwhile. And it seems like it has been helpful. People, people show up regularly and seem to get stuff out of it, you know, and I don't claim that I know everything or that I'm always giving good advice because I don't think I am, but even, even muddling along is better than not muddling along. So, um, so I just want to encourage you guys to kind of think about like, is there an opportunity for you to do something similar and would you want to? Um, and if there is, you know, maybe give it a try. So, sorry, then you. Andrea's probably, Andrea's probably going to know what I'm going to say. So we've been doing exactly that for the last few months with a, in the European time zones with a, a Saturday discussion afterwards. 
and personally for me, it's been an excellent um, augmentation to my own practice. Um, and of what I've heard from a lot of the people that come along is it's really helping them as well. And maybe Andrea can wave her hands if she agrees with that. Um, excellent. And so uh, people have probably seen me mention it on the subreddit. Um, and I would recommend anybody. And I, I know that there are people that are doing something similar in uh, at least the East Coast um, with Ariel and Mark. Um, and on a Saturday morning their time as well as a Thursday evening I think their time um, so if there's nobody in your time zone doing something it's not hard to organize and it's great and you meet people and you get yeah. to talk to people about meditation that you don't usually do on a daily basis because we're all weird and off on our own is there a how to set that up anywhere uh, we could probably gather a group of notes and post something on, on the subreddit uh, for anybody that might want to do it themselves. Yeah, I think that might be really helpful. Yeah, there's no gold standard, but I can, I can talk to some of the other people that have done it and see what they've found useful. And I know what they've found useful as well. I like that pulling through is better than nothing. Yeah, I mean, usually. Is there a list of uh, times or... Uh... Or when when this is done, we haven't really talked about that, have we? But we could. You could make a, a directory of all the events, like uh, mm -hmm. Patty does for Finders. I've had something yeah. extra for you to do. Yeah. By the way, another thing that I will say about this is that it's been really helpful to me that people come on here and offer advice alongside me, and that I'm not the only one offering advice. And that's something that's worth cultivating in your meetups too, if you're not already, and I suspect you are. So, because otherwise, like I could easily, I could easily develop a massive ego about this and then that would be not very helpful. Something Michael Taft has talked about is how the, there's a center in San Francisco that was taken over by the students and is now run by the students and seems to be being really successful. Um, so that, that seems like it might be a useful model for setting things up. Yep. Yeah, I think that was the former against the stream center, wasn't it, Tom? Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, we've uh, we've hit our hour and a half mark. So, does anybody have any closing things they want to bring up, or should we say goodbye? I will take that as a no. Thanks, everyone, for coming. I'll see you next time. Thank you.